If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. We took a two-week break from Palm Sunday and for Easter, uh, but we picked back up where we left off. We concluded chapter 12 uh, before Palm Sunday, and so we pick right back up in verse 1 of chapter 13. So today we're going to be in Luke 13, verses 1 through 9, okay? Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. I'll also be behind me on the screen. My translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Gospel of Luke 13, starting verse 1. The Holy Spirit says, There were some present that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not... You could cut it down. Amen. This is God's word. And may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Have you ever been asked the question, do you remember where you were when? Relating to some news event or national disaster. Have you ever been asked that before? Even if not asked that question specifically, we typically can't help but to talk about what we were doing and vividly picturing in our mind our activities on the anniversaries of significant and traumatic events. When I was in fifth grade, I remember our our teacher, uh, fifth grade teacher, was telling us about the JFK assassination, and he brought in a Coke bottle to show us. And he said, as he held up the bottle, this was the bottle of Coke that I was drinking when I was sitting at the kitchen table and I heard about the assassination on the radio. I remember where I was when my mom told me about what happened at Columbine about 20 miles from where I had just gotten out of middle school basketball practice. Many of you remember with vivid clarity where you were on September 11th, yes, and and recall it every year on that date. These uh, are traumatic events brought on by human evil, and we can't help but have the images and feelings seared into our memories so that if someone were to ask, where were you when, you would have an exact answer. You'll never forget But the bigger question that everyone asked then and continues to ask even still in light of these events wasn't where were you when, it was simply to ask why. Why did this happen? Why did that man kill the president? Why did those two teenagers walk into that high school in Colorado that day? Why did those wicked men fly those planes into buildings? Why did those things happen? Indeed, We ask that question every time a fellow human perpetrates some evil acts, whether on great or small scales. But we don't just do 
know the answer to that question when evil people do evil things. We don't just want those answers. We want to know the answer when forces of nature strike as well, right? Who could forget the devastation left in the wake of Hurricane Katrina? Or closer to home of Michael? What about uh, the hurricane that struck Haiti or earthquakes in the Pacific or flooding and mudslides, volcanoes and forest fires? Why did those things happen? Why those people as the victims of those events, whether from humans or from nature, why them? This question isn't new. Peter Kreft says the problem of evil or injustice, of sufferings of the innocent, of bad things happening to good people is older than all the puzzles. People have that, that, that question today. They had it yesterday. They had it 500 years ago. They had it 2,000 years ago and beyond. And it's on the mind of a certain questioner of Jesus in our text this morning. We find Jesus where we left him in chapter 12 two weeks ago in the midst of a lengthy discourse before his disciples and the crowds that began in chapter 12, verse 1, and it ends here in verse 9. As Jesus talks about the need, you can just look at your text and look up in the chapter 12, <coughs> excuse me, he talks about the need to settle up the debt one owes of to God because of sin in this life, lest you stand before him and it's too late, someone speaks up. And asked Jesus about a recent event that everyone had been talking about. Apparently, there were some Galileans who were offering sacrifices to God when Roman governor Pilate had them killed and their blood mixed with the sacrifices. So either Pilate had their, had their blood purposefully mixed with the sacrifice as a cruel joke, or he had them killed in the middle of these Galileans offering these sacrifices and the blood mingled with them. Either way, Pilate, who you know and who everyone hated as well, uh, for his well-known cruelty, brutally murdered the audience's fellow countrymen. People want to know, why did this happen? Jesus, in addressing the murder, brings up the common thought that many Jews operated under, which is the presumption that if something like this happens, it must be because those who were killed were greater sinners than those who were not. The logic went that these particular Galileans that were killed. Not other Galileans, because the ones who were killed were greater sinners than other Galileans. And this is a punishment from God, and he simply used a wicked ruler to carry out their demise. What does Jesus say to this line? This line of thought. He says, I tell you what. No, they were not killed because they were greater sinners. He rejects this reasoning out of hand, doesn't he? After 9-11, Several evangelical talking heads like your Falwells and your Robertsons, they went on the TV and they went on the news and they proclaimed 9-11 happened because God was punishing America. Do you remember this? One said that God had lifted his protection from us. They said this was God's retribution for all this or that sin. That's how they rationalized why those attacks happened, just like people did in Jesus' audience, Yes. As I said at the beginning, when these evil things happen from wicked people, we want to know why. It's only natural. And in searching for ways to figure out divine prerogative, these guys and ones like them have decided they have God all figured out, right? And they know exactly why he allowed this to happen. But what would Jesus tell those people? Jesus would rebuke them and say, I tell you what, no, no. Jesus flat out denies that kind of logic. This did not happen because they were worse sinners. I tell you, no. This is a strong denunciation of a reasoning that would say, 
when bad things happen to people, it must be because God is out to get them for some sin they committed. And then when good things happen to people, it must be because God looks upon them, what? With favor and as payment for their supposed goodness. To be sure, that's a neat and tidy way to think about how the world operates. But Jesus says to that, I tell you what? No. But then Jesus brings up his own example of another tragedy. But this one wasn't carried out by evil people, like Pilate and his henchmen to the Galileans. This was a, an accident, like a natural calamity. This one happened just down the hill from the temple. And a tower by the pool of Siloam fell on 18 people and killed them all. Jesus therefore asked the same question that he intends to answer immediately, right? Were those 18 people worse sinners than everyone else in Jerusalem who didn't have a tower fall on them? What's he say to that question? Again, I tell you, no. So likewise, when Katrina happened and the hurricane that devastated Haiti happened, the usual suspects said, well, New Orleans, it's wicked, right? It's a wicked city full of debauchery and idolatry. This happened because God was judging them. One even said that Haiti's destruction was because they made a pact with the devil. So God was getting them. What would Jesus say to that logic that once again thinks that it has divine prerogative all figured out? Were New Orleans and Haiti full of worse sinners than wherever it is that those evangelical talking heads live in their palatial mansions and swim in gold coins like Scrooge McDuck? Jesus would say to that in strong terms, I tell you, no. What Jesus is exposing here is the way in which we all tend to operate and think. And his words to the audience of Luke 12 and 13 would have been as striking for them as it is today. We all naturally, you could admit it, operate under the premise that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. If we're doing well in life, things are going good for us, we have our health and financial stability or whatever other metric of the world that we want to adopt and define as the good life, well, we think it must be because God is blessing us for our goodness and our deeds. But then, when things go poorly, whether it be struggling with our jobs or relationships or health, we wonder, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God punishing me? And for both of those lines of thinking, Jesus says, I tell you, no. This neat and tidy way of thinking is seen all over the place. There's people in the Bible who think just like this all the time, and they're rebuked almost every time. Think of Job. Remember his goofball friends, his uncomforting comforters? Job was clearly someone who was righteous, and God was pleased with him. When things went south for him, what did his three friends say? They asked, what did you do to deserve this? And Job said, I didn't do anything. And they kept saying, come on, you must have done something for God to punish you in this way. And Job kept insisting, I didn't do anything, man. But, but they kept going on with that logic, trying to pull out some kind of admittance of sin out of Job. Later, God rebukes them for that kind of thinking. Another example, when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, his disciples, they're aghast. And they ask, who can be saved then? Why? Because they thought that wealth was a sign that God was pleased with you. How is it then that it would be difficult for a rich person to be saved? It didn't make sense to them. 
In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they see a man who's born blind, and the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? You see their logic? The only explanation for why this man was born blind was either because his parents sinned and God was punishing them through their child, or somehow the baby could sin in utero, and God was punishing him. Those were the only possibilities. Jesus says in that instance, I tell you neither, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, we laugh at the disciples and Job's goofy friends, but we think like this too, don't we? When we get something good, we think it's because we deserve it for being such a great person. Or maybe we think our religious deeds have finally paid off. We have earned our, 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 our nice wage, our nice things, good health, good relationships, or whatever. We, we, so what do we do? We become smug and self-righteous. So that's the only explanation, right? If I get good, it's because I deserve to get good. Even if we don't chalk it up to innate goodness in us, we still say, what I have, I deserve because I work harder or did this or that better than those who don't have what I have. I did something good, or I am good. And therefore, logic tells me that I get good things. You guys remember Sound of Music, right? When Julie Andrews' character and Christopher Plummer's character falls in love, and they plan to get married, they sing a song called Something Good. This is what they say in that song. They said, perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. You see what they did there? They're saying that this good thing that's happening to them must either be to make up for some misery that they didn't deserve earlier in life or because they did something good to earn it. When good things happen to us in our life, we might not break out in song but we might as well be singing, I must have done something good. That's the only explanation we seem to know. But then when, what happens when bad things happen to us? We think first, I don't deserve this because we think we deserve the good but never earn the bad. But then we also start to think, what did I do to make God punish me in this way? Have you asked this before? Of course you have. So we become downcast and depressed or maybe we self flagellate or otherwise beat ourselves up. Tim Keller said, when we operate by this way of thinking, when things go well, you're going to be smug instead of happy and grateful. When things get, go poorly, you're going to be devastated instead of hopeful and enduring. Let's just call this way of thinking what it is. It's karma. Is that not karma? It's just karma. We could dress it up with re re religiosity and think our pious religious deeds, but then it's just Christian karma. But it's karma nonetheless. When good thing happens, it's because the universe is repaying me for the good that I've done. When bad things happen, the universe is repaying me for the bad I've done. If you want to make it Christian, just replace universe with God. In the same vein, when someone does something against us, our hope is that, you know this is true, you've said this in traffic when somebody cut you off, I hope your bad deeds will catch up with you. And they'll get what's coming to them, right? That's not the gospel though, is it? Jesus is telling us here that God does not operate the way we expect. He says, stop trying to figure him out. He's operating under our standards of why or how things should happen. Elizabeth Elliot, who was the widow of Jim Elliot, said, God is God. 
and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service, I will find rest nowhere else but in his will, and that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he's up to. This is what Jesus is getting at. A transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, ever-just, ever-loving God doesn't operate under the neat and tidy systems that we've concocted. So it should be irksome to us when some self-appointed religious guy gets on our TV and says, this is why this bad thing happened. Who are you, O man, to think that you've solved the mind of God? Who are you, O clay, to think that you know what the potter is up to? All throughout the Bible, we see that God doesn't operate under this strict man-made way of, if I get good, it's because you're good, and if I get bad, it's because you're bad. Because if God did operate this way, literally no one would get good. Do you realize this? As someone once said, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened once, and he volunteered. The author of Ecclesiastes and the Psalms and the prophets all could point to the wealthy and the prosperous who were wicked. And say they are wicked. And their prosperity doesn't prove anything except that they use it to be more wicked than they were before. They look at the poor and the blind and the lame and the orphan and the widow and they say, take care of them. They don't say, well, they're in that position because they did something and God is just getting them back. I suppose we operate with this way of thinking because then we could try to make sense of the world. Don't you think? Because we want control. Because we can't stand not knowing things. (laughs) We can't stand to be perplexed or confused. We can't even stand not having God all figured out. So we try our darndest to even try to come up with reasons why he sends or allows prosperity or calamity. Jesus says, knock it off. He is God. Can I break some news to you? You are not. You can't see what he sees. You don't know what he knows. He isn't going to fit into your little box. See, what we want is for Jesus to say, this is what I want Jesus to say here. You want to know why those Galileans are killed? You want to know why that tower fell on those 18 people? And then give us an explanation that solves, right, the problem of evil and suffering in the world. But what does he do? Not that. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that we are creature and he is creator, And there are just things that happen, right, we won't know the reasons why they happen. And that's frustrating. I know this. But God is God. I'll never forget, when I was pastoring in Texas, I was sitting with a woman who was having a really hard time with cancer treatments. And she couldn't seem to ever get any kind of breakthrough rest. And I'm sitting in her living room, and she asked me, why do I have to go through this? Why me? And she was hoping, you know, as her pastor, I had some insight to offer or explanation for why this is happening to her. And, you know, I thought about it. And I thought about it, it seemed like 10 minutes, but it was probably only like 60 seconds. I thought about the theological education I had, the things I've been taught, and the apologetic books I've read about answering the problem of evil and suffering. But I finally just looked at her and I said, I don't know. I don't know. Now, she didn't seem very comforted by that, but I came to realize that's the really the only answer I could give. I could, I could theologize, right? I could offer a philosophical explanation or give some other argument, but in my finitude, 
I have to say, we have to say, when someone is going through suffering or struggle, that we don't always know why. It's not as black as white as we want it to be, and it never has been. When we struggle or go through some hardship, we really do wonder if God is punishing us, don't we? For some sin or sins we committed. But Jesus throws that out. Does he not throw this completely out? There is, of course, the truth that all pain and suffering is a result of sin. That there, is, that there was none of that before Genesis 3. Adam never fell out of a tree and broke his arm or anything like that until sin entered the world. Pain and suffering are intrusions into the created design of the world. But not all pain is a result of some personal sin that a capricious God is getting retribution for. If that was the case, explain the cross. The cross shows us what Jesus is saying here is true, and suffering can be used for redeeming purposes. We want answers, but Jesus says, you're looking at this the wrong way. They ask, we ask, Jesus, why did this happen? What does Jesus say? Isn't this amazing? He, he in essence, asks back, why don't you repent? The what? <laughs> you guys remember the wrestler Roddy Roddy Piper? He used to say, just when you think you have all the answers, I change the questions. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus changes the question. We want him to solve the problem of suffering and evil for us, but he diverts our attention to where it should be, doesn't he? Jesus, did those Galileans that Pilate massacred sin more than other Galileans? Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will perish. Jesus, did those 18 people that got crushed under that crumbling tower sin more than everyone else in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. James Edwards says in his commentary on this passage, the sudden and seemingly senseless deaths of the victims is not sensationalized or sentimentalized, not memorialized or moralized. Jesus does not eulogize the victims, but addresses the hearers directly. This need not imply that Jesus was insensitive or heartless towards the victim of these events. Rather, he had tapped into the passionate feelings such events aroused in his hearers in order to harness those feelings for the salvation of the unrepentant living rather than relegate them to the memory of the noble dead. Jesus here is doing what Jesus tends to do, which is challenge our categories or just flat out obliterate them. What's he saying here? He's saying, contrary to how we tend to think, this, that all of us deserve to have a tower fall on us. We ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But Jesus is wondering why we aren't asking, why do good things happen to bad people? In other words, all of us. He says repent because instead of focusing on if people who struggle are bigger sinners than us, he says, why don't you take this opportunity to look at your own heart? Because you could just as easily have had a tower fall on you. In fact, it's what you deserve. You think of the first example given of Pilate killing the Galileans. Perhaps the audience wants Jesus to get into a political discourse of denunciation against Pilate and the challenge of Rome. But what does he do? He says, in essence, I'm not talking about Pilate. He's not here. I'm talking to you. You must repent, or all of you will be destroyed. Kenneth Bailey says, what is the response Jesus is hoping to evoke? At least this. 
We ask him to look at the evil in Pilate. He wants us to see evil in our own hearts. We must repent. If we do not, that evil will destroy us. It's as if the people are saying, what about Pilate? What about the people who died? And Jesus is saying, what about you? The questioner in verse 1 wants to look away from himself and towards those who perished. He wants to assume they are worse sinners than him. He wants to look to others and say, I bet they're bigger sinners than me. And proof is that they died and I still live. Aren't I so great? I mean, that's, that's the draw of looking at others and examining them, right? That's the draw of seeing people struggle and assuming it's because God is finally getting them. That's the draw of gossip. The more I could talk about others, the less I'm forced to sit with my own heart. The more I could talk salaciously about their sins, the less I have to reckon with my own. The biggest gossips are the least self-reflecting people on earth because they've turned their mirrors into windows. And once you have no mirrors, you never know when you're disheveled. Then you never have to deal with your own flaws. Jesus is trying to kill our pride, for pride is at the heart of every sin. He's after the pride that would cause us to look out there at them and wonder why God would do such a thing to them and then conclude it must be because they're a worse sinner than I am. C.S. Lewis said that what God wants to give us is himself, but to do so he must first kill our own animal self-love and persuade us to take the fancy dress off, get rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy? And all it's posing and posturing. He said, until then, you'll, we will be unhappy and restless. Jesus says, the disaster happened, yes, and it happened in part so you can look at yourself. Every disaster should remind us that disaster can befall us all. And that the ultimate disaster would be to stand before God with an unrepentant heart. Why? Because then we will truly perish. To repent means we have come to grips with our own hearts to what we actually deserve, to realize that everything that we ever enjoy in this life that is better than hell is sheer mercy. To repent means to reckon with who we really are and who God really is, to see that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which has put us at enmity with him. To see that if we truly got what we deserved... We wouldn't like the results. I know that's a hard pill to swallow. You don't grow a church talking about this, do you? When we've been fed all of our lives self-help platitudes that tell us that we're actually pretty good and there are just some bad apples in the world, right? Maybe you mess up sometimes too, but that's not a big deal. And shouldn't you get everything you've ever wanted? But if we're to receive divine pardon, we need to repent. Without repentance, there is no salvation, don't you see? And we can only repent when we actually deal honestly with our own hearts and our posture before a holy God and, and, and a just God on our own standing. You remember Charles Spurgeon's friend, John Barrage? I've told you about Don, John Barrage before. He said John Barrage was as good as he was odd. He said John had a number of pictures of different ministers uh, around his room, and he had a mirror in a frame that matched all those portraits hanging at the very end of all these uh, pictures. Well, when somebody would come over to his house, he would take them around the room like a tour, and he would say, stopping before each portrait, right? This is Calvin, this is Luther, this is Bunyan. And he took, took them up to the mirror, he would say, and that's the devil. Why, the friend would say, it is myself. 
Ah, said John, there's a devil in us all. Do you get that? Do you get that you're a sinner? Like, do you truly understand that? Now is no time for platitudes and half-hearted affirmation of the pastor so he'll stop talking, right? You can stay silent if you want to. I don't mind. As long as you answer truly that you know that you're a sinner. It doesn't matter at this moment how or why or how frequently other people sin. The issue in this moment is do you realize that you are a sinner and that if you were to get what you were owed based on your own goodness and merit and religious piety, you would perish. Because if not, if you don't get that, you can't truly repent. Jesus reminds us here that all are sinners and all sinners face the same fate before God, which is why the way we die, the timing of our death, in a sense, is irrelevant to this discussion. Whether you die young or die old, you will die, and after this comes the judgment. Whether you die quickly and painlessly, or you die in an accident or in prolonged suffering, you will die, and after this comes the judgment. Whether you die rich or you die poor, you will die, and after this comes the judgment. Whether you die having lived an easy life or a hard life, you will die, and after that comes the judgment. And then what? Well, if you don't settle with your accuser in this life, as verses 57 through 59 of chapter 12 say, you'd be doomed. Is that not what Jesus is saying here? He says, if you don't repent, you will perish. Is this not a serious warning, my friends? Jesus wants us to focus less on how and why and when and come to grips with the fact that God operates consistently with his character and not with our expectations. God is never unfair because he doesn't operate by our standards of fairness. If we wanted to talk about fairness, then there'd be no place for the gospel. You realize this? No place for the gospel. The gospel tells us that God is not unjust, but the gospel means he has extended undeserved mercy and grace to us, both of which are not fair. We don't actually want fairness because then we'd be in trouble. Let, let, let's, let's cast out this whole nonsense of fairness. We don't really want that, I assure you. Is it fair, my friend, for the only perfect man who has ever, 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 ever lived to be executed on a Roman cross? Is that fair? Is it fair that the only person to ever fully do the will of God and obey perfectly absorbed the wrath of God for sin even though he never committed one himself? Is that fair? Is it fair that the only one who could actually look down on people instead came down to people so that he could bring them up with him? Is that fair? We don't want fairness. Fairness would leave us damned. Fairness would cause us to perish. Fairness would leave us without a Savior who atoned for his enemies. So what's Jesus saying in 13, 1 through 5? It's simple, isn't it? He's saying you need to repent. And when do you need to do it? Right now. Let me ask. Can I ask this? When was the last time you repented? I'm talking about your neighbor, not talking about people you know. When was the last time you repented? 
Listen to what I'm asking, okay? When was the last time you repented? Notice I'm not asking, when was the last time you felt bad for something you did? Was. Notice I didn't ask, when was the last time you were afraid that your actions might have consequences? Notice I didn't ask when the last time you were sorrowful for a time over something you did. Notice I didn't ask when the last time you beat yourself up over something you did was. When was the last time you repented? Repentance means giving up our self-justifying ways. Repentance means you have recognized that offenses have been committed against God and acknowledging that those offenses have been... uh, Acknowledging those offenses without any kind of excuse making that we all tend to. This is followed by turning to God and away from sin through the power provided by God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. When was the last time you repented? Sinclair Ferguson, he could help us in his book, uh, The Grace of Repentance, which we have about five copies there on the bookstall you could grab. He says, biblical repentance is not merely a sense of regret that leaves us where it found us. It's a radical reversal that takes us back along the road of our sinful wanderings, creating in us a completely different mindset. Regret, there will be, but the heart of repentance is lifelong moral and spiritual turnaround of our lives as we submit to the Lord. We could illustrate this quite easily, can't we? In a text we'll get to soon, there's a parable about a younger son who tells his father, in essence, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance so that I may leave. And he goes and he blows it on reckless and sinful living. He comes to his senses. He remembers what he knows of his father. So he gets up, he gets out of the pig slop, and he walks home reciting this speech along the way. Do you remember his speech? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What did he do? He acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged who he sinned against. He didn't make any excuse, and he knew he didn't deserve mercy. What did his father do? He gave him mercy. He treated him as a son and not as a servant. He put a coat and a ring on him. He killed the fatted calf. He had a party. Jesus is saying that the same could be true of you, but you must first have that humble posture before him. Won't he forgive you on the basis of his bearing your sin on the cross? Won't the father treat you like a son or a daughter and not a hired servant? See, our problem is we all tend towards being like the older brother with our religious record and our deeds and our, look how other people are worse than me, and our, but I try really hard. And as long as we hold on to those things, we will stay outside of the party because Jesus only allows riffraff to come in. So as long as you convince yourself you aren't a ragamuffin in need of radical grace and free forgiveness, you won't repent and thus you will perish. Jesus can make sons of Abraham out of rocks. Don't come to him with your arms full of your accomplishments and your family heritage and religious deeds. Those will get you nowhere. Come to him instead with empty arms and a bankrupt account and just say, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I don't deserve to be your son or daughter or even a hired servant. And you know what he'll say? He'll say, I know, come on in, and I will make you a son or daughter, and let's have a party. So let me ask, when was the last time you repented? If you have never repented, you need to do it now. If you haven't repented lately, 
You need to do it now. If you've never repented and turned to Christ for redemption, you must know, my friend, a tower can fall on you this very night. Don't arrogantly presume that you could do it later. What if later never comes? You don't know anyone who has died tragically or suddenly? Of course you do. So why do you think it can't happen to you? What are you waiting for? Jesus is telling you here in this text, repent or you will likewise perish. And do not delay. Repent now. You who have repented and turned to Christ at some point in the past, you need to realize that repentance is not some one-time act. As Martin Luther said, uh, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire life of a believer should be one of repentance. Without repentance, there's no growth in the Christian life. So if you've only ever repented once, you're still at the same spiritual level that you were at conversion. Does that suit you? It shouldn't. Repent today, now, in this place, at this time, not later, not tomorrow, not next week, now, and then henceforth. Everything that happens in your life or you see happen in the world should remind you to repent. When good things happen to you, you know what you should do? You should repent. When bad things happen to you, you know what you should do? You should repent. When good things happen to other people, you know what you should do? Repent. When bad things happen to other people, you know what you should do? Repent. Don't glory in your own goodness and think you've merited good things when everything is going well for you. Before you could dislocate your shoulder, patting yourself on the back and looking down on others who don't have it so good, you should repent before these feelings perk up and follow that by living a life of gratefulness towards God, knowing a tower can fall on you tomorrow. When bad things happen to you, don't assume God is punishing you for being inordinately sinful compared to those who don't appear to be struggling, because if you do, you'll feel hopeless and depressed, thinking you're abandoned of God. Instead, repent and remind yourself of what you know to be true of God because your feelings and thoughts can be liars, but he cannot be. When good things happen to other people, don't assume they're morally and ethically superior to you or favorite of God. And before you can be jealous or envious or covetous, what should you do? Repent. When bad things happen to other people, don't assume they're bigger sinners than you. Instead, repent knowing that the same thing could have happened to you as well. But then Jesus offers this short and straightforward parable, doesn't he? In verses 6 through 9, he says there was a tree in a vineyard year after year after year. The vineyard owner went up to the tree looking for fruit, and year after year after year, it was barren. So he told the vine dresser, cut it down. It's unfruitful. That makes sense, doesn't it? If a tree doesn't bear fruit, to cut it down. If you had a tree that didn't bear fruit year after year after year, you would cut it down too. Fruitless trees should be cut down. Not only are they not doing what they were created to do, but they're sapping resources from the other tree. That's what the vineyard owner says. But the vine dresser says, please, let me tend to it for another year. I'll dig around it, put some manure, and if it still doesn't bear fruit in a year, let's cut it down. Now, the dilemma that the vineyard owner uh, faces is this. What should I do with this unproductive tree? What would you do? Clearly in this parable, the trees are people, yes, and the fruits are actions. And what is it stressing? What it's stressing is, is both God's displeasure with fruit, fruitlessness along with his patience. God is both patient and long-suffering, but he is displeased at those who remain unrepentant. So what's the point? Here it is. The time left to repent is short. 
Would you presume upon another year? Would you presume upon divine patience? Jesus is saying that a quick response is needed. For once the time is up, it will be too late. This parable reminds us that God is patient, but it also reminds us that there comes a time when it is too late to repent. Joel Green said this, not incidentally, the parable holds for the possibility of fruit bearing in spite of a history of sterility, or in human terms, the possibility of changing, change leading to faith expressed in obedience to God's purpose. If it announces a warning of judgment, it also drama, dramatizes hope. This parable reminds us of what John said in chapter 3. He warned the people that the axe is laid to the root of the tree and that every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So if John said judgment is here, Jesus is saying there is still time, but not much. I know that what Jesus says here is tough. Isn't it tough? The call to repentance is never a comfortable one, which is why I suppose we don't do it that much. We must see that this text is utterly soaked in grace and mercy and kindness of God. When we hear that we are sinners, we feel like we're being attacked or that it's a bummer to be told anything except that you're an awesome superstar who deserves the moon. But Jesus is gracious enough to tell us honestly of our true state. He's loving enough to both tell us of our true need and to offer himself to fill that need. He doesn't say repent or perish to be a bummer. He says repent so that we can repent and thus not perish. He acts as both the vineyard owner and the vine dresser to say fruitlessness requires action, but there is mercy being offered to avoid being cut down and thrown into the fire. But not much time is left. Everything that is done to the tree in order for it to bear fruit comes from the outside, doesn't it? It is the vine dresser who advocates for the tree who commits to cultivating it. So maybe possibly if the solution takes to the roots, (coughs) it could survive and bear fruit. As Bailey said, renewal cannot come from within the resources of the tree itself. Cannot gather the strength it needs for its own roots. The vine dresser must act to save the tree, and at the same time, the tree must respond to those acts if they are of no avail. In other words, we got ourselves into this mess of sin, and we deserve if I can mix our pictures for a tower to fall on us. But Jesus says, I will come and I will cultivate and I will offer renewal to the root, but friend, you must respond. Look at your text again. What happens to the tree in the parable? Does it ever bear fruit? Does it get cut down? It's open-ended, isn't it? You know why? Because it's about you. You're the tree. If you've never repented, you are a fruitless tree. You heard the warning today. Will you respond? Will the gospel take root in your heart? Will you see the beauty of Jesus and bear fruit? Or will you presume upon God's patience and continue to put off what you know in your heart you need to do, which is repent and give your allegiance to Jesus? How will you respond, Christian, who bears no fruit? How respond, Christian, who evidences no sign of attachment to Jesus? How respond, Christian, who has no mark of repentance? How respond, Christian, who does not evidence love for God and neighbor? How respond, Christian, who does not bear the fruit of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, or self-control? It matters, Christian, if you bear fruit. 
As Snodgrass said, we need to recover some sense that action really are significant and remember that the gospel includes judgment, mercy, and a call to repentance and productive living. Lack of productivity still stands under indictment before God. If the privilege of being God's people does not lead to productivity, it still leads to judgment. Have you come to God in repentance? I want you to lock into me right now, okay? Have you come to God in repentance? I'm not asking if you've become religious. I'm not asking if you read your Bible and go to church. I'm not asking if you're a good citizen. I'm not asking if you vote this way or that. I'm not asking if you're a friendly neighbor. I'm not asking if people think well of you. I'm not asking if you're a nice guy or nice gal. I'm not asking if you're a good father or mother or brother or sister or son or daughter. I'm not asking if you're a good and honest employee. I'm not asking if you know people who appear to be worse than you. I'm not asking if your mom or dad or grandpa or grandma were good church-going folks. I'm not asking you to try really hard to be a good person. None of those things are the gospel. Those things are Christianity, and none of those things will save you. What I'm asking, and more importantly, what our Savior is asking is this. Have you come to God in repentance? Has there been ever an inward radical change in your heart and your mind and your direction in your life? I'm not asking you if you'll determine to be better this or better that. Have you repented and come to Jesus saying, I have sinned against heaven and against you? Have you come to him and said, have mercy on me, the sinner? Have you come to him and said, like the old hymn says, thou must save and thou alone? Jesus took the blow of the falling tower for you. So that if you come to him, you will not ultimately receive the tower that leads to eternal perishing. He experienced abandonment so that you never would. Because what the gospel tells us is that while we are more sinful than we ever dare admit, we're more loved by God in Christ than we ever dare hope. Or as the Westminster Confession says, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Have you repented?